God's covenant with his people, and you can see it in a passage like the one I just read for us in Deuteronomy chapter 6, is always forward-looking. God is always writing to the people and keeping an eye as he writes to the people of that day on future generations of the children's children, of the sons and the sons of the sons, of the daughters and the daughters of the daughters who will come afterwards. God wants that confession, the Shema, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. He wants that to be said not only by the generation that is standing right in front of him at that moment, which indeed he wants that generation to do, but he wants the next generation, kids, he wants you to take up that call. His intention is not just for your parents. It is for you. And when Moses preaches, he often preaches in a way so that he's not talking only to the parents. He's not talking only to the grandparents, but he's talking to the children, saying, children, we want you to have this faith. We want you to confess this faith together with us. But while God's covenant is always looking forward, it is always rooted deep in the past. Future hope is based on the past actions and the prior promises of God, the prior commitments of love that have been made by God. And so, in the times to come, the passage says, when your son asks you, why are we doing all this? Now, let's put this right into uh, our language. Why do we have to go to church? Why do we have to have these devotions? Why are we reading the Bible? Why do we have to do these things that you're telling us to do? What's the meaning of the baptism? Why do they do that today? What's the meaning of the Lord's Supper? Why did that take place? Why do we sing these hymns, confess that faith? Why do we do these things? Moses says, tell them a story. Don't just say, because God told us so. That's true. But Moses says, tell them a story. Tell them a story of how I rescued you out of Egypt. That's the answer to the question. I'm the Lord your God who set my love upon you, and I took you out of Egypt, and great plagues and persecutions fell on them and not on you. And that's why It'll be for our good if we follow these, follow these things that the Lord has commanded us to do. The teaching of the children, the love shown to the children, the love required from the children is all based on a prior act that God did, the prior act that God did in this case of delivering the children out of Egypt. But of course, that prior act is based on prior promises of God promises that he made, for example, to Abraham, or even to Adam, or even to promises that were made, as we read in the New Testament, before the very foundation of the earth, between the members of the Trinity, when the promises were made to deliver a people, to care for a people. God's covenant is forward-looking. It is rooted in the past, and it always carries with it present applications for today. Implications that involve, and this is just taking the words, the verbs, out of the text that is in front of us, hearing and fearing, confessing and believing, obeying, remembering, teaching, talking, walking. 
because in doing these things, if, if we obey God in doing exactly those verbs and what we're called to do, we will find that they are in fact not burdensome, but good. This is the promise that is contained in verse 24 of this. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as it is today. The future and the past have present implications to them in God's covenant. Baptism is ordained by Jesus Christ. It is appointed by Jesus Christ. It is instituted by Jesus Christ. Baptism is commanded by Jesus Christ. Baptism is given by Jesus Christ. He has given to us, no doubt, many things. Many great gifts and precious things come from our Lord Jesus Christ. But in particular, He gave to us baptism and the Lord's Supper, and through them, He has chosen to communicate to us to give us a sign in as clear a way as he possibly can to say, you're mine. That this covenant has sealed you and I together. That these signs show union and communion between us. In particular, these are signs of the covenant of grace. And for us, they are signs of the new covenant that has been made with us through the blood of Jesus Christ. And yet it is a non-bloody sacrament, baptism, through which precious blood is applied to us, resulting in our cleansing and calling us to a new life now. Like God's covenant, baptism as a sign of that covenant is rooted in the past with implications for the present and a bright hope for the future. So let me just for a few minutes then consider three things about baptism, and I'll tell you them in advance. First of all, the burial of baptism, and then the burden of baptism, and finally the balm of baptism. The burial of baptism may seem an odd way to speak of baptism, of something that is so celebratory and joyful, and I, and I think I can say pure and beautiful as we do it. Not that any of us are pure, but, but, but we recognize it. There's a purity to it because we know that Jesus Christ has blessed and ordained exactly this thing. And yet burial is key to understanding what is taking place in baptism. It's anything but pleasant. In fact, one might say that burial is kind of the final statement. It's the final word of death in this world. It's awful. If I'm sure all of us, or maybe not all of us, but most of us have been parts of funerals, and perhaps, perhaps you didn't go so far as to take a spade of dirt and to put it on a coffin, but perhaps you laid a flower on a coffin, or perhaps you watched a casket being lowered into the ground. And if you have, and if you love that person, you know how awful it is. It's awful. It's painful. And yet Scripture says this from Romans chapter 6 with regards to burial and baptism. 
we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death. Baptism united us with Jesus Christ not only in his death but in his burial. So if you want to understand this beautiful thing that we just did today, you have to see that the roots of baptism are not pretty. They're not sweet. They are not nice. Rather, the roots of baptism are a mess. Or more accurately, we could say that the roots of baptism are a bloody mess. So I, I could have called this first section the, the burial of baptism or the blood or the bloodiness of baptism. So with a little bit of apology, let's talk about blood. When is the last time that you saw blood spurting out, gushing from something? I remember one time it scarred Nate uh, for all of his life, not externally, but internally. I had had an ACL repair on my knee. We went to the doctor to get the stitches out. We thought it was going to be fine. We thought it's not going to be a big deal, just getting the stitches out of the knee. And the doctor, I guess, cut the top end of the stitches, and he, and he grabbed the, uh, the bottom end of the stitches with, I don't know what, but I'm going to call it needle-nose pliers, whatever it was. And, and he just pulled. And so, you know, the, what happened is the, the thread went and went right down the knee, and the blood just went everywhere. And I, it didn't hurt. It wasn't bad. But the doctor was like, whoops. Nate was like, oh. But we didn't expect it at all. And, and yet that was a controlled situation. And we have some people in the church who are nurses in surgical settings, and, and blood isn't good in surgical settings, but at least you expect it, and it's a controlled setting. But when blood is outside of those settings and you see it gushing forth, it's not good. I remember another time when Nate was bit by a dog and he came to Lauren and me and his face was gashed and blood was everywhere, and there's nothing sweet about that. There's nothing pleasant about that. The worst thoughts and fears come rushing into your mind. And not to be morbid, but to be morbid, because there's no, way to, there's no way else to understand baptism. I remind you of the death of my friend in Ukraine who tripped off the curb, the knee ruptured, the, the arteries in there, and the pool of blood surrounded her as her husband was there, realizing that he's not going to be able to stop this. Why? Because what we all know, what's evident, the life is in the blood. And the blood is pouring out right now in front of him. Blood is not good. There's a reason that blood, burial, part of haunted houses, horror movies, we recognize that the blood should be on the inside, the blood shouldn't be on the outside. That's a simple way to say it. It should be in, not out. And yet covenants and covenant making, as, as, as you look at those, particularly as you look at them in the Old Testament or even with the death of our Lord Jesus Christ, they're bloody things. Circumcision was bloody. Sacrifices were bloody. You remember Zipporah's reaction or the words that she says to Moses after the circumcision. She says, now you are a bridegroom of blood to me. That's an interesting term of endearment. You're a bridegroom of blood. Israel's worship was characterized by, it was rooted in death and blood. And when the covenant was sealed at one point in Exodus, we'll get to it in Exodus as we continue along in the book, but the way it was sealed is Moses took the branch and he dipped it into blood and he took it and he shook it out over the people and he sprinkled the people with the blood of the animals that had been slain. 
which seems to us, honestly, think about it here for a moment, think, think about that really happening, it's revolting. There's nothing that's appealing about that, about the pastor dipping in blood and then shaking it out over all of you. It's revolting. It's horrible. God's covenant and the sign of circumcision say to us, I'm guilty. It should be my blood that is shed. That's what baptism is a statement about. And if you don't get it, if it just seems nice, if it just seems sweet to you, you don't get it. It's a burial. It's a statement to say that the judgment of the water covering over us, the judgment of blood ought be upon us. It ought rest upon our heads. It should be my blood that is spilled. I am the one who deserves to die and to be buried because I am the sinner against a holy God. And that is why the first baptismal vow is, do you acknowledge your child's need for the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ? Do you admit that the blood is necessary? Because you've got to admit that the blood is necessary if you're going to understand what this baptism is all about. Baptism takes us back to the sin of our father, Adam, and to the blood and the death and the burial of our brother, Jesus. His burial is the burial that took place in this baptism. We move then to the burden of baptism. Now, I don't know if burden is the best word, but it started with a B, and so I ran with it. And you can decide whether burden is the best way to say this or whether another word that I'll use in a moment is. While rooted in the past, baptism lays upon us a present burden. Or if you will prefer, baptism lays upon us a present responsibility. A responsibility certainly on the one who was baptized. It puts a responsibility on Molly and to the parents of the one who is baptized and the community of the one who is baptized. So it puts upon us a responsibility as well. And being united with Christ in this covenant means that we are assuming upon ourselves the burden articulated, for example, as it was articulated, well, you could look at the Ephesians 5 passage that we read, or you could look at this Deuteronomy 6 passage that we read. We are assuming those burdens and those responsibilities, the need to fulfill that which is spoken upon ourselves in baptism. For Molly, in years to come, that's going to look like Molly expressing her faith in Christ, repenting of sin, when she's guilty of sin, learning to obey, learning to obey parents first, learning to obey her God, learning to love the Lord with all of her heart and with all of her might. And for Nick and Rebecca, it is a burden that exists on several levels. On, on the Deuteronomy level, we might say the burden that you just put upon yourselves is you agreed to be chatty about your faith. Deuteronomy 6, uh, verse 7 talks about that, right? You shall teach them diligently to your children and talk of them when you sit down in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. The burden is to be chatty about your faith. And the other ones we articulated, both in the vows and the things that I said before the vows, you have the burden upon you to set a worthy example before them, and you are going to feel the weight of that burden in the years to come because you're going to realize how far short you fall 
of being able to do that. You've got the burden to pray with and for her. You've got the burden to bring her up and the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. You've got to, the burden of bringing her up in a way that her life is embedded in the church of Jesus Christ, embedded in this community. And sometimes you're going to love this community, and sometimes you're not going to love it so much. That's going to be a burden for you to keep her life embedded in the church. We could pretend that it would be easy. At a baptism, it is particularly a great time. Baptisms and graduations, right? And weddings, I suppose. Those are the times to pretend that everything in life will be easy, that it will always be easy for you to raise your children in this way, but it will not. It will be a burden. It will be literally a bloody mess at times. If it hasn't been already, it will be. You'll see times that are quite the mess because covenant family life in this world is never easy. It'll take work for you. It'll take work today, and it'll take work tomorrow, and it took work yesterday when you were trying to get all the kids up nice, ready, calm, collected, ready for the wedding, looking nice all at the same time, everybody in sync. It will take lots of work, and it will be full of frustration and disappointments and sorrows, and it will be full of harsh words and misunderstandings that come along the way. And Nick, despite your best intentions to fulfill that Ephesians 5 mandate that you do not exasperate your children, that you do not provoke your children to anger, we can guarantee, if we can guarantee nothing else today, and we can guarantee other things, but we can guarantee that you will provoke your children to anger. It will happen. We know what we're supposed to do. We know what the Word commands us to do, and yet we will find it burdensome at times to pray for them. We will find it burdensome to teach them. You will find it, probably not yet, but at some time you will find it when you go to teach them something and they roll their eyes at you. And they say, please, not again. Not with that story. Not with the same law. Not with the same statutes. Don't remind me of that still. Another time you will find it to be a burden. And we all know this. We all know it from our own experience that few things in our lives are more delightful than when our families are living together in harmony. That's great. We all love when that takes place. And we also know that few things in our lives are as painful as the wounds that can be inflicted upon us by those whom we should love or ought to love us more than anyone else. And it doesn't change. Now, right now, you have little children. You can think about this from the perspective of little children. But it doesn't ever change, does it? Family's always hard. It's always complex. Whether you are an adult trying to figure out how to get along with your brothers and your sisters, whether you are a parent who is an adult and your children are, an, are adults, and you're trying to figure out the way that relationship works, it never gets easy. It is always a burden. But especially when you try to cut through the current of this cruel world by cutting covenant with Christ, ooh, then you are going to feel it then you will feel the daily burden of baptism. You'll discover it. And so it's good, not to leave us right at that rather depressing point, but it's good then to conclude with the balm of baptism. Because all of the burdens and all of the burial and all of the blood that are part of God's covenant, for all of that, baptism is remarkably, amazingly clean. I mean, Zoe was in white. I'm Zoe. Uh, Molly was in white. She had a little bonnet on when she came up. She looked great. I, you know I have to say this, right? Nick's in a suit. 
you have to say, it, it looked great. The water was clear. I didn't pour any blood on Molly. And I don't have any up here in a basin and a branch to take it and whip it all over you. No blood. No blood in this sacrament that God has given to us. It is then, and therefore to us, surprisingly joyful that something so associated with blood and burial and burden should now be transformed to what really is for us, what really is for us a delightful thing as we celebrate it together as a church. It doesn't root itself, baptism, in the sins of the past. It recognizes them. It takes those sins of the past. It doesn't try to hide from them. It says they're dealt with. They are taken care of in Jesus Christ. And if we ask the question, well, well, how can that possibly be? The answer is Romans 6 and the part of the verse that I did not yet read. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. The resurrection of Jesus and our union with Jesus has secured for us the grace and cleansing that is part of this baptism. Or let me say it this way. Let me say it theologically this way. Jesus purchased the efficacy of this sacrament at the cost of his precious blood. That's why that simple water poured out is effective. Because the cost of the water was the blood of Jesus Christ. And the resurrection says, payment's accepted. Payment is accepted. Grace is now distributed freely and fully. Use water, not blood. No blood needed for the people of God anymore because Jesus, who was and is and is to come, He has secured the yesterday, the today, and forever. Baptism has carved out a place for us in the covenant community of God, in the church of Jesus Christ. It's carved it out through the work of our brother Jesus Christ, through the love of God the Father, and through the washing of renewal that is poured out by the Spirit of God. And all of that is signified in baptism. It's the promise of the new covenant. It's the promise that closes the old covenant, which is to say the new covenant is going to come. There is going to be a time when I will restore the hearts of the children to the fathers and the fathers to the children. That's the promise that God gives with relationship to this new covenant. And so, Nick and Rebecca It's hard for us to project back and to try and understand how families felt and what what was the nature of them in the Old Covenant when we've looked at Genesis and Exodus. It hasn't been pretty a lot of times. But at least what we can say about your family, it is not to be characterized, not to be characterized by fear, by worry, by manipulation, by control, by harshness, by guilt. It is not to feel like a prison camp, nor is it supposed to feel like an army camp. Envy and jealousy and strife, those things do not belong as part of your family. They'll be there, 
but they do not belong in this covenant family. Rather, the teaching that you do, the discipline that you will need to do, the tears you will shed, and the rules, the ordinances that you indeed will enforce in your family come to us firmly anchored in the goodness and the mercy of God. And they are thus bathed in love and in graciousness. And that provides the feel, not the other way around. The balm of the gospel of Jesus Christ has been applied to the burial and the burden of baptism. There's a symmetry here in our lives. Molly starts her life off with a burial and a hope of resurrection. It's the way she'll end it as well. With a burial and a confident hope of the resurrection of the dead because of her union with Jesus Christ. Got to accept that darkness if you want to rejoice in what this sacrament actually is saying to us. The gaping gushing, bleeding wound of humanity has had a balm applied to it of the gospel in Jesus Christ. And that, for the Kirklands, and that for all of us, has been signed, sealed, represented, delivered to us in the simplicity of baptism. Saints of God, Baptism is God's gift to you. It is ordained by Jesus Christ, instituted by Him, and appointed by Him. May we rest in it and strive from it. Amen. Let's pray.